0: Welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three planks to our writing manifesto number one to help you write more number two to help you write better and number three to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things to that end we get guests on the show to talk about writing I sometimes look at listeners first pages and give some examples of how they could make them even better I talk about writing and we also have a few writing courses that you can do for free via the podcast and get better at writing or just enjoy it or just be happier. any of those things it's fine today I'm speaking to the poet and writer Vanessa Kisuley um, I've performed with her before, that's not part of her CV, it's just how I we first met, was through the poetry scene, um, we've taught together, she has performed up and down the country, uh, she's also done, I mean, as well as, we, we talk a little bit about all the different things that um, she's done, and uh, I, she's done everything, including um, being on the battle rap scene at one point, uh, which was really awesome, um, but she also... Uh, We talk about um, some poetry she's done during uh, lockdown in over the uh, last year in response to different things. uh, And it's weird to me that like the first poem I think of, when I think of Vanessa, is actually her poem about where's Wally. Um, I I suppose like we always want to like praise poets for their poems that are on, uh, I, I guess, issues of moment. Uh, or things that resonate with us emotionally. But I would say it actually did fulfil the second um, of those two um, of those two criteria, actually, because it's a kind of beautiful poem about parenthood and letting go, and it just kind of took as its premise something, you know, absurd, which I always think, you know, I think this is something that uh, a poet like Ross Sutherland was always very good at as well, and remains that way, which is to take a an absurd premise or a silly premise or a a pop culture premise and then play it pretty straight and our kind of defences are down then. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was, she's got a really amazing range. And we talk about that a little bit about, um, her occasionally feeling, you know, wanting to resist, uh, boxes or labels and occasionally, you know, being praised for her poems that are, uh, not not worthy but i suppose are um, the kind of poems that people expect the ones that are maybe a little bit more political the ones that are a bit a little maybe a little bit more um appear more obviously autobiographical but the where's wally poem is really really good and uh i i think you know from my perspective as an author and a writer the thing i always admire in other writers the most is is versatility is willingness to experiment is willingness to take risk is willingness to go over here and play about in this area and then go somewhere completely different and i think sometimes in the arts we have kind of internalized that as a kind of arrogance right like if somebody makes some music and then they go and paint we it's like you just think you deserve attention you haven't actually earned your way up and 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 there are egregious examples of of people you know not doing great but i mean but they're i don't know like it's it that seems negative to me that seems it's not that any it's it's not i don't know like i now that's not what's going on here like vanessa just does works in different styles but even within poetry it's so funny how we get like siloed into like this person the funny poet they only do pieces that are kind of like wacky or surreal and they don't have any kind of emotional heft because they're kind of a robot or whatever you know they they, you know they they don't take things seriously because they're smiling or they make use jokes to make their point this person is a kind of political ranter because they they did those pieces that got people fired up about politics this person is like an identity poly, poly uh, uh semi-autobiographical identity politics poet because they're doing these kind of confessional pieces that are really raw and have a kind of slickness and a kind of slam style to them and 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 it's crazy that like in poetry which is quite a small scene to begin with you know you want to silo people even more into these and so we talk a, a bit about that we talk a bit about we're just kind of like ping all over the place as well because so much of you know poet poetry and what we talk about and ourselves and writing ends up being about what we believe and who we are and who's allowed to talk about what and who we want to be as artists as well and how we relate to our audiences and how we present ourselves as a kind of Ongoing small business concern. You know, we talk about bit about success and the pressure to present as always having fifty projects on and always having lo- you know more than you can deal with in because you want to attract success by appearing successful. All these different things, and I think it's a really great conversation. I I, I knew that I knew it was going to be a good chat because I I just find especially on Twitter and we do talk about Twitter a little bit but I I find Vanessa one of the most rewarding people to follow on Twitter just because she just kind of resists doing the Twitter thing really and uses Twitter for things that it's not very well designed for frankly you know like nuance and uncertainty and asking questions rather than making declarative statements and W- wondering about things and presenting counter narratives and i just always really respect that and i respect people you know sh- questioning things i respect people showing kind of compassion and uh i just it, it just is really really cool i i just I, I it's always a relief it's like it's like seeing the one it's like seeing the little bright light in the kind of uh uh coming from the uh from the uh from the uh tower block in the city that's been overrun by uh, zombies you're just like oh cool there's <laughs> there's life out there um and 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 it and it just was a really funny chat but basically what i'm saying is i knew that i could be I, I i'm never an amazing interviewer uh but i knew that i could be really off my game in this particular interview i knew that i could have really phoned it in um uh, I I I and frankly, it would have still been great because uh, Vanessa is just capable of being insightful and interesting and pushing back and just you know it's like and I, t- I tell you what like doing any kind of like chat and stuff like this on on the show, I'm sort of super aware that you know we always want to uh, you know we we come on and we and, and we talk and people kind of you know we just want to be liked and so we like mostly people when you know, come on and we talk and we kind of try and agree with each other and things like that uh but it's 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 really nice to be able to talk to someone who I genuinely get on with and um and and just uh, and and just know that she's going to say things that uh make me think and she asked me a bunch of questions as well which is always I always feel a bit thrown on the back foot but it was really it just yeah anyway I won't go on about it because I'm kind of like gilding the lily slightly but um, I hope you enjoy uh, the chat Um, I've put links to uh, Vanessa's Twitter and her website um, in the show notes but it's Vanessa Kisule with uh, two u's and um, yeah watch uh, keep an eye out because I, I know kind of Vanessa's got a few things in the pipeline which we sort of aren't you know released yet so we weren't able to talk about but I hope um that she's gonna be one to watch for you uh and there's a bunch of her poetry online that you can go and check out as well the only other bookkeeping stroke admin I have to say is if you enjoy the show or even if you don't and you're just feeling kind of like perverse like you just go I hate this I hate this show I hate Tim Clare daring to put out this and calling it content in a great ocean of content creators, or why, why would Tim Clare be so smug and self involved as to put his own stuff, even if you loathe me, but you sort of have a perverse desire to reward me for it anyway because you like that kind of thing? Um, you can go to my coffee page. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. It's ko fi.com forward slash Tim Clare and chuck me a few beans to keep the wheels on the wagon, to keep this um, show on the road. I apologise profusely and from the bottom of my heart for the um, wonky release schedule of episodes. You cannot hate me as much as I loathe myself. So um, the best thing for you to do, I think, under the circumstances, if you would like the show to continue... not not a threat, I'm going to continue doing it anyway, probably even to my financial detriment if uh, no one's able to support the show, Um, then uh, Drop Me A Few Beans It allows me to support like hosting costs and uh, just my ability to take time uh, away from my writing, which is my full-time job, um, to uh, record these episodes. You're wonderful, I know you're going to enjoy this episode, Um, please just kick back and uh, listen to me chatting with poet and writer, Vanessa Kisule. Do you remember when you first, like... Because I sometimes think of poetry as, like... And storytelling as their own kind of, like, subculture. And they got, like, branches within them as well. But do you remember, like, when you first got a sense of stories and poems being, like, a thing that had, like, power or...
1: Hmm... Poetry was the last thing to come into my consciousness, I think. I I loved reading ever since a book was put in front of me. That feels, and maybe the memory has been adjusted in my sort of origin myth in an overly neat way. But I remember the the love of books being pretty instantaneous um, and reading one really hungrily uh, and teachers encouraging that a lot and giving me books that were above my reading level and all that sort of thing so I always loved books and novels poetry didn't really come onto my radar until I was 16 but then it was in a very academic literary way it wasn't the spoken word stuff that I ended up going into a couple of years later and I really liked reading it but I didn't it didn't occur to me to write it at all um so it's it's interesting that the art form that I spend most of my time engaged in is the one that I came to sort of at the at the last minute, proverbially, uh, and definitely through the performance element that's when it connected that I might actually be able to contribute to it as a canon. I didn't read Yeats and Yehuda Amachai and all these poets that I loved in school and think oh you know "There's, there's space for me there and I think there's a you know all the obvious stuff that you would imagine going on there I could sense that these people were these rarefied beings that had gone to these fancy universities and had these lenses on the world that made them poets that I couldn't make a relation to if I had been introduced to poets that were a little more similar to me maybe I'd have made the connection sooner but that didn't happen when I was at school and then I went on YouTube uh, and saw all of these performance poets and rappers doing their thing and I was like this is the sickest shit I've ever seen I definitely want to do that. Um, I always feel really embarrassed by that because it's not it's not interesting enough because it's, it's like if you were writing a story about how someone got into spoken word, someone would tell you, no, they can't just like see some YouTube videos and decide they want to do it because it's not in, it's not interesting. It's not inciting enough. They need to like stumble upon it on a random night where they couldn't get into the club and then they just go to this cafe and then they it's a late night cafe and they see some people doing poetry and it sparks something. Whereas my story is very much slobbing in front of a screen and encountering this art form um and every time i tell the story i'm like i'm gonna i'm gonna come up with a lie i'm gonna come up with a better lie for when people ask me this that's more interesting because it just it just feels quite uh i don't know anticlimactic i saw some videos and thought they were cool and then went from there basically
0: yeah but you know what that lie about the origin myths of like being a writer it it does like serve a certain type of person and I think I yes, certainly I hear it a lot from like uh you well I used to hear it more from like editors and stuff that writing is something that you're born with it's not something you learn and and it's like a kind of almost like an aristocratic gift that's like passed down and you either know right from the beginning or like it was that was never born to you and that is not your destiny right and and it and it kind of it serves a certain kind of like I mean I didn't start writing poetry until I don't know maybe I was like 25 or something like that like certainly I hadn't done anything up until then but like then I had some friends who were doing it and I like went to a couple of gigs and then I was like oh I I'm quite enjoying this and there's like quite a nice like vibe in the audience are laughing it's like a kind of comedy set and and that's when I sort of started tiptoeing towards it but I didn't I mean I didn't even have your thing of like having legitimately liked some poets growing up I liked I mean like as a kid I did Michael Rosen I fucking loved like Hairy Tales and Nursery Crimes where he was just like messing about with the sound of words to make new ones but like when I became like a Teen and stuff like that I, I, I like lyrics uh, I you know like I was growing up in the 90s so there's like loads of hip hop that I liked but I never put that as going oh that's like you know that's anything that I would then be producing any more than I'd see a movie and do that so I didn't really have. I had exactly the same thing as you and I saw some poets and went I wonder I wonder if I could pull that off and which I, poets I said,
1: do you remember which poets it was that started off that thought process
0: Fuck. I mean, like, some of them are, like, people we know, like 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 Luke Wright and, and Ross Sutherland, although, like, I saw Ross's stuff, and I didn't really... I liked it, but I didn't ever think that was, like, something I could do. And to be honest, it was also going to those gigs and occasionally seeing someone who was, like, a bit shit doing, doing all right. And you... Do you know what I mean? It's that mix of people that you see, and you go, fuck, fuck, I wish I could do that. And then seeing the people who are like... Just to you, you feel a little bit like they're phoning it in, and you go, "I know I could do better than that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, "Well, like all the
1: time." I find it deeply comforting. You know, I'll see something that I think is mediocre at best, and it it, it got it got the funding, it got the support, it got the audience, and it's just like, "Okay, cool." And it's not even a, a it's not coming from a place of despair disparaging that artist, you know, because if people enjoy it, fair enough. But it just makes me breathe out and go, you know what? I don't have to be this brilliant, shining orb of um constant discernment. Like average things get made all the time and um appreciated all the time. And it just take it just takes takes the pressure off instead of constantly looking at all the things that I admire and think are like the epitome of brilliance and thinking that I have to in order to even have a to, to have any uh, justification for demanding people's attention I have to be that brilliant or better it's like actually I can just make something it my, my my bar is those things that I think are mediocre not the things that I think are some of the best examples of literature that you know we've ever seen so i i, I find that quite heartening and it's not a shade and Freud thing I mean it is a little bit but yeah I, I I agree with you. It's definitely a mixture of admiration for some people and then also just a leveling and a and a comfort that knowing you know what you can you don't have to be that brilliant to get people's attention
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what I like about the British scene to be honest is that there's room in some of the performance for people to be like a bit scrappy and human like I think if I'd only grown up on the american slam like slick three minutes like just just like so honed i'd be like well i'm never gonna like the idea that i could just fit what i want to say in three minutes let alone do it without mistakes and kind of like land it and 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 deal it and deliver it with conviction I don't know whether what I'm saying is nonsense I think probably it is nonsense I think I'm a bit of an idiot right and and, and so it's nice to have people being kind of vulnerable and and i blundering and sometimes doing something that's like a bit like a dad joke almost occasionally those kind of things make it feel like there's space and uh so what was the do you remember what the moment was when you do you remember I know again I'm like I'm Trying to get you to come up with like the moment you stepped on stage and there was tears and bouquets were like chucked at your feet, but like, what, what's the what, what? How how was that transition period for you from like going from like going, I could do this to actually the reality of being behind a mic and doing it on stage?
1: Okay, so I think it's very important to declare that I am I am a bit of an attention whore. I I really like I really like being on stage and I like <laughs> I like people having. I like people implicitly having no choice but to listen to me because I'm the one with the microphone and I'm the one on the stage. And I think I always had a good instinct for that um, ever since I was a child. I liked drama. I liked making people laugh. I I think I've always had an instinct for that. Uh, So when people ask me, oh, how do you have the confidence? Or, you know, "I, I could never do that. Have you got some tips? I feel a bit disingenuous because I think some of us just really, I mean, I get nervous sometimes still, but there is is there there is this desire, you know, that's probably quite um, self-serving, self-aggrandizing, I don't know, whatever, um, to do it. Whereas I know a lot of also brilliant performers who actually really, they have to overcome a lot of stage fright, a lot of uh, introvertedness, um, And they are better equipped to give people advice about how to overcome those fears because I just, I just, I fucking love it. It's (laughs) like, oh my God, I get to be on stage and people have to listen to me and I get to look shiny and i got a cute outfit on. Like that just, my ego is just like, like choking all of that up, like just absolutely loving it. So for me getting up and doing a poem for the first time, I mean, I was very, my hands were shaking like a leaf, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't my first my first attempt at being in front of people and um, trying to engage them in some way. That wasn't something that felt alien to me. Um, so it was it was the first time take, bringing something of my heart in that sense of like having written something that came from the guts of me and then sharing that with people. But just being perceived by an audience was something that I was quite familiar with and just really enjoy. So yeah, it probably wasn't as big a shift as it is for a lot of people who are like, I, I literally, you know, maybe I did one presentation for English literature in school that still haunts my nightmares. And that's the only other example I have of being in front of other people in this way. So they have such a mountain to overcome in terms of doing that. Um, and, you know, you and I both know there's so many poets who are very good at what they do. But if you have frank conversations with them about this audience perform a contract they, they they are very ill at ease with it and they do it because it's how you sell books you can't really be a writer and not have to at least you know do the literary festival circuits and this and that but they they hate it you know if they could just sit in their little offices and write their books and put them into the world without having to engage with anyone they would <laughs> you know I know a lot of writers that are like that I'm not one of them I like being shiny on stage and I'm very good at it. So, you know, that's lucky for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you kind of you, you, apolog, you apologized there and you talked about ego. Do you think do you, do you think it's an ego thing? Like do you think it's something that we should be uh, 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 at, at the very least wary of that that wanting to be on stage, wanting to perform to people?
1: I mean, that's that's the big question, isn't it? For all performers, you know, outside of poetry, you know, if we're talking comedians, we're talking actors. Like what what is this? What is this compulsion? to put ourselves in front of people and demand their attention and to pull at their emotional heartstrings in this, you know, manipulative, calculated way. Like what, what is this about? And you could be quite worthy and say, you know, this is part of the human condition. You know, we want to share, you know, we are helping people to empathize and, and understand their own predicaments. And, you know, you could, you could frame it that way, which absolves us somewhat, or you could just say, Oh my God, you know, we are just so desperate to be, acknowledged and validated um we are not happy enough in ourselves to just be we have to constantly say hello look at me over here like let me let me earn your love by making you laugh or um saying this thing is like this other thing um look at my similes look at my my witty in between poems banter like you know it's just like you know you can have a conversation about what on earth that's all about um i mean so many of the things we do are about this this fundamental fear that just just to be is not enough it doesn't warrant your the square footage you take up on this planet right <laughs> so yeah. i'm sure there's a lot of that going on but i i think culturally and you know this is a pet theory of mine uh that discomfort with um showing off or demanding attention is a very white british thing like black people like and obviously not to you know to speak of us as a monolith there's plenty of you know awkward uncomfortable introverted black people but culturally there is a lot more within you know sort of african cultures or african american cultures to like big yourself up and be like yeah i'm the shit or if you look at you know you, you're a hip hop fan you you can't just be like oh you know i'm i'm quite a good rapper but i feel like it's in this space like it is part of the, it is part of the 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 It's part of the the culture of hip hop to big yourself up. Like you are up there because you think you're the best fucking rapper in the world, bar none, right? If you don't have that energy, you can't be a rapper, basically. And I feel like that comes from a lot of our cultural points of just like you just you just gas yourself. You're just like, yeah, like here I am, like I'm the shit, like it's cute, it's a vibe. Um, I've always owned that about myself. Like my dad, I grew up with a dad that was always gassing me, and I feel like that's gone into my brain. And I'm just like, I'm Vanessa Casule in it. Like, I'm the shit. Cool. I I very rarely meet white British people that have a similar mindset. I think so. I think there's I think there's a quite an interesting cultural difference there, you know. And I think that's why British humour is often self-deprecating, um, self-lacerating, um, and can be very brilliant with that. But sometimes I find it a little bit like oh like it hurts me I'm like why why are you why are you trying to get ahead of everybody is it because you are so convinced that everybody thinks you are such a, a an inconsequential slug in the corner that you must constantly reiterate that you are aware of this fact before anybody declares it I'm just like what a what a what a sad what a sad thing you know um So, yeah, the ego thing, yeah, it's ego. But also I'm just like, oh, you know, I have but one life to live. Like, let me let me big myself up. Let me let me rate myself.
0: I just yeah, I've always been that way. The cultural touchstone for that dichotomy is in Mr. Toad in wind in the willows right and all through the book of the story he is like he loves himself and he will just tell people like i missed he's like he loves himself he gets obsessed with these manias he's running around like he'll just he just has no worry and his friends like we like him because at the beginning of the book before mole who's like the main character we're following around meets him ratty says vouches for him he says look we're going to meet my friend toad People find him a bit much, but like he's he's good underneath, and he's like clear, like he's loyal to his friends, like he loves his friends. So don't you're gonna think he's a bit too much. We meet him, he's uh, he's getting into trouble. He like he gets chucked in jail. They have to break him out. He's like people will he'll, he'll he'll and he'll break down into sobs and go, I'm sorry, I've made such a mistake. And then the minute he gets out of that problem, he'll be like, I knew it. No one will ever defeat. Like he never learns until the very very end of the book. When he gets Toad Hall back, and like his friends just like stage an intervention, and they're like, "We're not gonna let you host this party unless you say sorry, and you've got to stop bigging yourself up." And he finally comes out, and he walks out, and for the first time ever, when they're talking about the big fight they had to take back Toad Hall, he says, "Actually, it was it wasn't really me. It was it was Mole." And he notices, and we get it from his perspective, and he notices that people go well, I'm sure you were amazing. And he goes, "Ah, if I lie and say I'm less good than I think I am, other people will do it for me. And there's something about the end of the book that is kind of sad. But we go, oh... Toad has learned to play the game and he's become a hypocrite. Up until now, he would just go, I like myself, I'm great. And then he learns to force uh, to to force other people into having to do it for him. And I feel like that is the That is the psyche right there. And I think it, you know, it's, it's like it's this idea of someone who actually the low status is a con. Like it's a way of forcing other people to fill in the gap for you. And and it, and it puts a burden on them. I've done it with audiences and you're just going, I'm not all right, lift me up, <laughs> like he- help me. Whereas when someone comes on stage and goes, you know what, I'm fine. Like you don't have to worry about me because I've got this covered, right? As an audience, you go, ah, oh. right. So I'm, this person isn't desperate for me to react in a certain way. And then you're in, right? And I think it's, I love, think, I, I've only really ever thought about status games since I came on stage. And you think about what energy you're bringing to the room and i think i think you're right and of course there's always exceptions and different ways people play it but um it's it, i think it's a fat I, it, I think it's really sneaky as well because it, everyone wants their re- status to be raised but we just have different strategies for getting that from people
1: absolutely absolutely and uh i think because there's so there's so much um, there's so many layers to how we go about that and some really underhand um, yeah like as you say, like you know quite, quite elaborate ways that we try and um, acquire it from other people or squeeze it out of other people. And as a woman, I have to say like this is such a thing where you know I call it the one direction syndrome of like you know you you you, you know declaring oneself as beautiful is like anathema. A, a man comes along and decides that about you. Um, and obviously that's, you know, compulsory heteronormativity there. But, you know, my point is, is that even if you are a queer woman, there is this notion that it, it is the man that decides whether that whether you possess this quality or not. Um, and people find it so repugnant. And I know we're living in an era now of like, oh, my God, like feeling myself, whatever else. But I feel like that's become its own sort of obnoxious um excessive thing because we had to swing the pendulum so far the other way because for so long, young girls have had to be so... they've had to shrink themselves so much and be so at the behest of the boys who decided whether they were pretty or not or whether they were valuable or not that we've had to kind of become these quite self-obsessed, you know, vain figures because we we are pushing against this tide where we just have no sense of agency or, or choice of like, you know what, I can just decide I am these things. I don't have to sit here twiddling my thumbs until someone deigns to give me, you know, a scrap of attention or a scrap of validation. But yeah, I agree with you. I think that people think that self-deprecation um, self, self uh, self-deprecation is humility and it's not. Someone can be very confident and also very humble. I think that the distinction is the space you give others. And I love people that are both very confident and very self-assured, but also can can see others and give space to other people's craft and other people's brilliance. That to me is wonderful because that has to come from a place of genuine um, self-acceptance. When you accept yourself and you know that you bring value, you can see the value of others. It doesn't feel like their value undermines yours. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I feel like sometimes people's self-deprecation become can become exhausting. And the older I've gotten, the less time I have for that. I find it very difficult to feel like I have to constantly prop someone up or reassure them. Um, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to why people are that way. You know, a lot of people grew up genuinely being told that they weren't shit. You know, and you know when that happens in your formative years, you can spend your entire adult life trying to undo that. Um, but I think also, as you said, people have been implicitly told that that is that is the roundabout way that you have to go about getting these 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 notions of of, of selfhood and of, of value. And I just I'm just like oh god, like. At some point, you've got to wake up one day and be like, this is exhausting. Like, why have I, why have I given away all of this onus to other people? Like, who are these people? You know, they're going to come, they're going to go. One day they might decide you're worthy. One day they might decide you're not. Are you going to give all of that away to random fucking people? Or are you going to just take some responsibility for yourself? You know, um, so, yeah, I feel like it's really interesting to observe the differences across genders, across cultures. Obviously, these things become easier with age, in theory. Um, so there's there's lots of things that that change and 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 flow. But I've just always I've just always felt like you know what my confidence my confidence doesn't mean that I'm always like I always love my work or that I always feel great on stage. But like there is just a, a fundamental nucleus of like yeah, but like I'm me though. Like I'm me. Like it's great. I'm great. Like even when in a given moment i'm not feeling that great that doesn't undermine the fact that i just just everything is great that's not very articulately expressed but um (laughs) uh that for me is non-negotiable and i think i would not have been able to sustain a career this long if i didn't have that because it is as you know such a volatile precarious difficult thing that we do and that we have decided to entangle with our finances, you know, not just our sense of self, but like whether or not we eat and whether or not we can pay the rent. So you've got you've got to have some, some self-acceptance there. You've got to have a, a, a base level of like, I'm okay, I'm all right, I can do this. That can't be floating along on the wind. <laughs> that kind of needs to be nailed down and secure.
0: How, how have you found that as a like creator? Cause I know you've sort of spoken about this before, but the idea that like actually then when we're engaging with people, in online but also in real life i'm sure this didn't come along with social media there's a and in the poetry scene but i'm sure it's true in other um communities as well that actually what you're seeing a lot of the time the people who seem kind of quite confident are like kind of going i'm doing this project and i'm producing this and there's this kind of like this work ethic where they just seem to be everywhere and they're all um comes from uh there's this how do you deal with this like pressure that we we don't want to report like fuck I just got knocked back from three things maybe my star's on the way and in case there's going to be like this sort of you know this aura of bad luck is going to start being seen around you that you're somehow cursed and you won't be that it will attract less attention How have you dealt with like because you often seen you be like really honest about like you know going through a lean period or something um whereas a lot of people take this and including myself like often feel like a pressure that like I need to be posting photos every week of like the latest place I'm at doing a gig I mean obviously not during the pandemic or announcing projects and just communicating productivity and success how do you how how do you how do you navigate that without sort of like you know when there is it feels like there is a genuine pressure to be seen to be the the success attracts success right
1: yes yes and I think Anybody who poo-poo's that and says, "Oh, you know, you don't need social media to be successful," or "Oh, you know, you don't need to be uh, visible to people in order for people to know that you know you're here and that you're out there," I there's a reason why most of us, whether willingly or reluctantly, are on these platforms because this is the land, this is the landscape we're in these days, you know, whether people like it or not. And when people come up with the exceptions to that rule, writers who don't have social media, they're usually naming people that came to prominence before all of these things were as crucial as they are now to having a profile. So there's no point telling me, oh, well, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie doesn't have social media, Zaley Smith doesn't have... They, by the time these things emerge, these guys were were top of the game. They were writers that... And you've seen it, you know, with their latest releases. They can release essays that they already published in the New Yorker or that they farted out during the pandemic. You know, they're basically the... the the, the the thickness of a fucking iPad and because their name has that much heft they can publish that and probably you know make themselves a little pretty penny and not have to release anything again for five years most writers do not have that particularly if you if you came out and you know you were emerging from let's say 2010 onwards like the landscape is just different so I think it's about having a really honest conversation with yourself about what you can and can't sustain some people are really good at social media It's an art form to be good at it, right? And I don't think it's fair to say, oh, you know, you're obviously very shallow and preoccupied, and that's obviously gonna undermine your actual craft. I think some people they know it, like they know how to build rapport with people, they know how to keep it fun, you know, they they're supporting other writers. Fantastic. For some people, that's just too much. They can't handle the various tabs you have to have open in your brain to do that successfully. So I, myself, I have decided I'm not going to have an Instagram. I decided that because it's a more visual medium and that for me is more, and sorry to use the buzzword that people mock so much, but I find it triggering in the sense that yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a young woman that grew up in a world where, you know, what your face looks like, and what your body looks like, is such a big part of your currency, that that can just swallow your entire brain to the point where you can't focus on what you're trying to do. And if I were a model, or I were a dancer, or I was something that was a visual medium, it would make sense for me to be on that platform. I'm not, though. I'm a writer, right? And I get that there are writers on Instagram, and, you know, they, they post pictures of their books and pictures of their face, and it's all kind of part of their brand, and it works. But... For me, I can't find a I can't work out a way to do that where I don't fall down some mental health rabbit holes that are very detrimental to me. So I think you just got to weigh up. OK, like, can I handle that? Like, am I able to do that and, and, and have a healthy sense of detachment? Am I able to do that and still enjoy it? Am i able to do that and actually make sure that ultimately people are more likely to buy my books or engage with my work because people can think you've got a cute face. And like the pictures of your face or like like the pictures of you at a gig with another writer who has clout doesn't mean they're gonna buy your book. So I think it's about understanding the difference between that, you know, because you can end up inadvertently just becoming an influencer because people think, you know, you got a shiny life and they like some of the little, you know, clips of your work that you put online for free. But are they gonna like are they gonna drop 14 quid on your book? That's different. So I like Twitter because I feel like Twitter's just for the bants. Um, I have fun on there yes it stresses me out it's for all the reasons that are very obvious Um, but I've managed to curate and manage it in a way that I feel is sustainable for me I feel like it has given me lots of opportunities as a writer because I hear about competitions or you know I can follow certain publishers or other writers or whatever else I feel like it offers more than it takes away inevitably it takes some things away it fritters away my time it makes me feel anxious. Fills my brain with a bunch of 24-hour news that I otherwise would not be engaging with, you know. But I've weighed up those cons with the pros, and those make sense to me. And I try as much as I can to really just like push out stuff that I like. Um, you know, I want to be someone who people are like. Oh, Vanessa's always recommending really cool books or like great TV shows or whatever. Like I, I try to be positive. I try to be someone that's like in and of the community. Um, and that's not some some people could say, oh, it's because when it's your turn, you want everybody to be gassing you maybe there's a tiny bit of that yeah (laughs) like let's keep it 100 like sure but I would never share or big something up that I didn't sincerely enjoy um and I just you know as a value system I just believe that you know like a rising tide lifts all boats if I big up writers that I love like it's it's good for all of us You know, like if a poet I admire wins an amazing prize, like that is that is just a good thing for us collectively as a people. Um, So I really try to use Twitter as a thing to push against my self-serving and um, miserly instincts, which are there. You know, this feeling of like there can only be one young millennial black woman who's like out there doing things or that, you know, if somebody else's book that's it similar thematically to mine does really well what does that mean for my book and all these things that crop up and I just the way that I combat that is by just bigging up other people more rather than being like that that means I need to scheme about how I'm going to bring myself forward or I need to be posting more about what I'm doing or did it like I push all of that away and I'm like you're just you're just going to be more supportive and big up people even more like yeah that's that's kind of my approach and that might sound really sanctimonious but I think it's because People think that people that are really sort of good, benevolent people are like instinctually that way. And I'm like, yes, some of them are, but I think also some people just have decided what their values are and those values override all of the ugly, selfish shit that actually (laughs) resides in their heart. And I'm one of those people. I am not instinctually altruistic. I am not instinctually generous, but I aspire to be those things. I think those things matter. So they steer me when I'm feeling like I'm not successful enough, or I'm not shiny enough, or I'm not getting enough attention. Those are the things that dictate my actions, not my feelings, because my feelings can't be trusted a fucking dime. Like my feelings my feelings would make me do all types of stupid shit. So that's how I approach social media. Um, and when I'm feeling sad and sick and, and, and vulnerable, I just get the fuck off there. Easier said than done Um, because it's that weird thing, I'm sure you have it, like the more anxious you are, the more pulled in you are to it and you weirdly want to like, you want to feed... The, the the wittering in your
0: brain yeah it's like the gambler's fallacy right as well you think like maybe i'm gonna like spin the reels and i'm gonna hit something that makes me feel better or i'm gonna get a little bit of like uh validation that sort of like cools that down like it like and then so you go i'll oh, just have another and, it, and it's so easy it's so frictionless to kind of keep going that yeah that's when you're that's when i'm most likely to be doing it in a not healthy way
1: yeah so i'm very good at just saying you know what it's time to dip for a few days and I really like that because uh, this might sound a bit judgy of people that are very, that tweet a lot, but I, I don't want to be, I wouldn't want someone to go on my timeline and be like, this girl be tweeting from morning to noon to night. Like, I don't like what that would say about me as a person. So I, I have a little bit of shame of like, do you know what? You don't, <laughs> you you don't want to be that person that's just tweeting all the time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm passively on it a lot. So what's the difference? Um, but... Yeah, I'm just very aware of like do you know what? Like if you find yourself tweeting 3 or 4 times a day for a whole week, it's it's time it's time to get off. Like why 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 are you on this app so much? Like get on with some fucking work. Hug a friend. Like look at a tree. Like yeah. That's my approach. What's what's your relationship with it?
0: right now well like well now I've gone I've like gone I'm back on my bullshit like really bad like I I I had a period of just like I went I, I I switched it off I locked myself out on it I set up a bot that just tweeted random shit I like made it so it would like produce a tweet every like four times a day and it just did and it got better engagement than I ever did when I was thinking about stuff it was so dumb and it was like and it was deliberately like asinine bits of writing advice and it just generated it randomly and it it just and sometimes and and sometimes people didn't know it was a bot like they couldn't tell me and like this this oh it was so dumb and I it was like it was yeah it was like oh it was a good but in a, but in a way that was a good wake-up I was like oh like I don't and the stuff that's got the best engagement that I've ever shared is the stuff that later I feel a bit I feel a bit sick, sickly about because it's like inevitably me being my le- least generous most partisan and least nuanced and I just feel like people just jumping on it with that kind of energy of like "Nah," and I'm like what have I achieved and what is my investment in this I suppose is like the bottom line and I'm like do I feel like I'm really solving an issue or do i feel like i'm getting attention and validation and i think my investment in it is almost certainly the l- latter and i just don't i don't feel comfortable with how it muddies the water with my motivations i'm like Ugh, i feel like i'm in this for the wrong reasons um so like i i am on it and i'm and but now i've just come come back to it with a kind of I'm like, I just, I'm so bad at tweeting now. (laughs) Like I just, I I tweet so like banal shit that would be like for, you know, for for someone's, for like a kind of retirees, like Facebook page would be seen as a little bit dreary. I'm just like, I just thought today, isn't it funny how life goes so quickly? Like it would be like that level of vague or working on a new project about a third of the way through got some interesting things ahead like so so abstract that like no no there's nothing for anyone it's just like a sphere completely beige with like nothing to like grab hold of or feel offended by or be interested by or I switch between topics that are so completely in different spheres like i'll be talking about poetry then i'll be talking about neuroscience then i'll be talking about like the pokemon collectible card game and it's like there's no one person who c- will not be alienated by one of those three topics and want to unfollow? I love it.
1: that because you're just you're just you're just saying what the fuck you want.
0: Like
1: I love I love your tweets because I'm just like Tim Tim Tim's doing Tim. That's, you, that's, what, that's what I was fishing for. Whereas <laughs> you can tell when people are tweeting because they're trying to they're trying to attract like as me- they're trying to like hit you know they're the sort of people that will look at what's trending and they're like let me jump on whatever's trending because I want to be. I want to surf a wave of potential virility. Or as you say, they tend to go for, you know, hot takes or, you know, deliberately sort of divisive or antagonistic things, because those are the things that get engagement generally. And it's been really interesting for me to observe how people respond to things that I tweet that are deliberately ambivalent or sitting in that line of like, do you know what, actually, guys, I'm just going to speak into my confusion or my fear or my my feelings are being torn and sometimes you know that gets relatively little engagement and sometimes people really respond to it and you know I think we have to acknowledge that it's just fundamentally not a medium that has the space the capaciousness for that type of ambivalence or inquiry or you know sort of collective uh chin stroking um but I've been pleasantly surprised by how much traction some things of that nature I've gotten when I've tweeted them and I've had I've tweeted some things where I've been like I'm genuinely fearful of how people will respond to this because I'm saying something that goes against the received notion of how someone like me should look at this topic like I'm thinking about tweeting about the fact that I think you know you know after Sarah Everard's murder you know like men do terrible things <laughs> you know I've, I've spent my entire life being haunted and devastated and angry about that and have realized that the only way for me I believe to deal with that is to have compassion and I think you know there's such an acceptance that you know women's anger is righteous and that women's anger is uh to be you know heralded and 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 uh kind of fetishized or commodified um and I've sat with it a long time and I was like I don't know if that's the way I mean and I'm not uh saying that women aren't allowed to be angry of course they are and they have every right to be and I was, I was one of them for a long time. Um, but, you know, tweeting that out there, I was like, particularly, you know, hot off, you know, that news kind of still being um, what a lot of people were talking about. I was like, I was in fear. I was like, I don't know whether this is the space to say something like this. But people responded really well. And I think, you know, sometimes when we go out on that limb, you know, you can kind of sense that collective sigh of relief from people of like, oh, like, there's someone else who's also kind of going, guys, what about this? I don't really know. Like, And I always try to frame it with that sense of uncertainty, which is hard to do in 280 characters. But I think it's really important. You know, If that means that I have to go on and on and on in a really long rambly thread, I will. Because that brevity means that you inevitably are coming off more strident than you intend to. And I really want to make sure the language is one of exploration rather than declaration. Um, and I think that's what saves it and stops me looking like someone who's saying, guys, I think we should be approaching this issue like this. It's more like, guys, I've been thinking about it and I don't really know. But, you know, I've been I've been sitting with it and, you know, I feel like this is going on, but also maybe this is going on and other people might feel differently. And what do you think? And yeah, like people can respond in the most remarkable ways to that. You have to obviously accept that there are people that are going to deliberately misconstrue you and you have no control over that. Um But, yeah, I I find that those are some of the best moments I've had online when I've been honest about that particular aspect of my thinking. So, you know, it
0: has its rewards. Can you talk a little bit about how you've, how that thinking has kind of spoken to or in some cases how you've struggled to incorporate it in your your work? Because I'm thinking, like, one of the things that I started to... feel conflicted about when I was writing poetry was how I could write like a poem like you know you know a poem where you just say you stridently say like one thing and you go bam 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 and you kind of like make the audience feel and they get they cheer behind you that can be very effective it can be like this kind of like monolithic kind of one note thing nuance seems to me like a harder sell with the audience could like you feeling conflicted seems like a harder sell, and i wonder like when you're creating you know either um in your poetry or when you're um you know writing in a kind of non when you're writing as yourself um and i know those two things aren't completely separate that they can they can kind of cross over how how do you how how do you do that because like uh, you know there there are audiences who will reward you for just like getting up and going like And sometimes, like sometimes, you do need to get up and say "fuck this person" or whatever. But like, I just wondered, like, there's loads of things are pulling you in different directions. There's different gravities pulling at you, and I wonder how you negotiate that when you're getting on stage. Um,
1: I think it's very hard in our slam scene. Although what I will say is, when I judge uni slam, I'm really heartened by some of the young poets coming up now they are approaching their writing and their performance with a level of sophistication that I I wasn't even aware that I wasn't doing that because I wasn't even aware it was something that you could do at their age. Like, you know, they're writing and thinking on levels as 18, 19 year olds that I'm only just coming up to as a 29 year old. So I have a lot of hope for the new crop and what they're doing and the fact that they are they're consuming slam poetry and stuff on youtube but they're also reading wayne holloway smith and um you know uh caroline bird and you know like they they have this wonderful sense of the plurality of poetry um whereas i can freely admit that i jumped on stages because i'd seen a very particular thing on youtube and that was what i was um emulating and it was as you say that very kind of strident declarative thing and i think and you did a really interesting episode on this because it became the space for marginalised voices to speak their stories and to, to, to have that sense of um, a mirror, to feel like there was a space where not only would people listen to you, but there were people that had also had similar experiences. That is an intoxicating feeling. And I think I'm only just emerging, blinking like you do when you're in the cinema and then you come out and it's still daylight. I'm only just emerging from that now after like 10 11 years um because I think I needed it and I think I'm 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 only just forgiving myself for some of my creative and political tropes that I very much sort of sat in and never really examined because you know I I was still very much giddy from the fact that oh there's this space where not only is it okay to say these things and do these things they are celebrated in fact they are you know and i i hate to give any credence to this whole thing you can't be a white straight man and get up on the stage and do a poem these days but like yeah let's be honest like in slam being who i am and having the stories and experiences that i have has currency almost nowhere else does it but in slam it it does and i don't think it is I don't think, it. I I feel like it would be silly to say that that's not the case. I'm not saying that white straight men are being, like, oppressed or that they're being silenced or this or that. But, like, definitely, because the art form developed how it did and was made to support the, the communities that it does, being who I was and telling the stories I was telling felt like, yeah, like, I had, like, a... I had like an extra sense. So it was interesting, you know, people would interview me like, you know, what are the struggles of being, you know, a, a, a woman in poetry or whatever, or being a black woman in poetry? And I'd be like, I can only speak for myself, but that has never been a barrier for me. Maybe if I was trying to be published by Faber, or, you know, these more kind of rarefied traditional platforms, I would be coming up against the closed doors that so many black writers do. But in the slam world, in the performance poetry world, Like, that's, that's my world. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like it gave me so much, but now where I am as a writer and as a person, I definitely feel the limitations. I feel the limitations in terms of what I'm, what people will presume I will talk about, the stances people will assume I will have, the style that people assume I will speak in. And it used to happen back in the day, people would be like, oh, you're a rapper, right? and I'd be like no (laughs) like my shit doesn't even rhyme like what what do you what do you mean you know people would say this having seen me perform and I was like you have
0: you you were there like you were there in the audience what did you see tell me what you saw
1: yeah it's very wild (laughs) people would come up and they would say oh I love Maya Angelou apropos of nothing and I'd be like what the fuck's that got to do with anything and how are we similar as, as artists other than the fact that she's a, a a black woman? Like, you know, so all those sorts of things would happen. But yeah, I feel like definitely, and it's cause you know what, I'm a contrarian. Like I definitely, the minute I feel like, oh, you think you've got the measure of what I'm trying to do as a writer. I just want to kick against it. Sometimes to a silly extent, like it's okay to fulfill people's expectations sometimes, like it's, it's fine, particularly when you would have done that anyway, you know, you're not being forced to do something. But I always want to surprise myself and surprise others. I always want to go, particularly now, I want to go to the places where I might be the one who was in the wrong and explore what it means to talk about that in my writing, rather than coming from the place of, here's a long list of all the times I've been wronged and all the times I have been misunderstood and da-da-da-da-da, and it's very easy to write from that place. And you know, you get a sense of vindication. Like, you know, my my sto- my version of the story is the only one that's like in black and white on a piece of paper. So this is this becomes the story. It's like being Adele in it. Like, who gives a fuck who the other person was that Adele was dating? Adele's version of events is now the version of events, right? And that's kind of that's a a quite malicious aspect of being a writer, I think, particularly when you write autobiographically. You know that you can put your version of things into the domain. And people are like, okay, that's what happened. And it's like, do you know what? I'd love to just explore all the times that I was a bit of a dickhead and be like, let's 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 unpack this a bit. Let's see how it feels to write about that, honestly, um, and also to like make stuff up. I think I've been leaning on autobiograph autobiographical writing a lot, and you know, it's that thing of like, oh, people don't think you're a real writer. They're like, oh, you're just you're just basically putting diary entries out into the world. And it's like actually no. I want to prove that like I can make things up and <laughs> um, I can do things with craft and blah, 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 you know? Um, and that might be because I have a little white man in my head that I'm holding myself up to in terms of like anything he can do, I should be able to do, which is quite unhealthy. But yeah, I feel like I have to prove that point to myself and to people that consume my work because I don't want people to pick up a Vanessa Kusile book and be like, I know what I'm getting. No, like, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I feel like I'm going through a big shift at the moment. There's lots of things I'm grateful for as far as what I've learned about myself as a performer and a writer in the spoken word world. But I'm definitely outgrowing a lot of it and, um, you know, quite cynical about some of the aspects of it. Again, you touched on lots of it in the episode I heard you do about all of this. Um, Yeah. And I think... I think I think the new generation are doing some really exciting things. So I'm actually quite happy. You know, I feel like it's going to evolve. I feel like we have naturally reached the end point of where that particular iteration of very worthy political, um, unnuanced slam could go. I mean, I can't speak for America, but I think here in the UK, we just were are never gonna be able to sustain that because I think we just we're just not that way. We do you know, we're too I feel like we've got a sense of humor and a way of looking at the world that's just less less on the nose which is a wonderful thing and i and i i hope we preserve that with you know all of the the vigor that that requires because you know every now and then it does feel like we're being colonized by the american slam scene in ways that i find sad and i feel like sometimes people aren't aware of how very kind of anarchic and cabaret the scene used to be. When you think about, like, the Rachel Pantechnikons and, like, you know, Selena Godden and, you know, all these people back in the day, like, doing poetry in between punk sets and stuff. You talk to the 18-year-olds, they don't know about that, you know? But they can name you a bunch of um, American slam poets, you know, off the top of their head. And I'm like, we need to remember the particular heritage of, like, UK performance poetry and, like, what that is and, like, really, like, cherish it because it's it's, it's gorgeous and weird and silly and almost kind of performance arty, you know, some of the stuff I used to see back in the day that I don't really see anymore. And I think it's again, because slam rules are like no props, no singing, you know, it's three minutes, you know, it, it, you know, starts to shave away at some of these deviations of performance. So anyway, let me not get get lost in the forest with that, but.
0: Yeah, no, I think like the new cabaret scene like fed into that. And a lot of people who kind of like were doing performance poetry in the eighties were had come out of, like, the f- the like the folk club scene and had come and, 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 and maybe, like, peeled off, started in poetry and then became, like, more classically, like, pure stand-ups or I think so many people that we don't even think of now as having got their start in poetry, you know, started off as performance poets and then stepped sideways because the scene felt too constrained for them. And, like, I, I, I've got... Re- I've, like... Yeah, i've got very mixed feelings about all of it because every time i start building up a sort of head of self-righteous steam i like remember some of the context and what some scene bits allowed people to do and like why you might want a space where you can say stuff that a kind of like corporate controlled largely right-wing media is is not ever saying why it might just be cathartic to ha- be able to say that out loud but i also like you hear some of uh, hear voices like quote unquote heavy scare quote outsider voices in any kind of like iteration of that become commodified and i remember like when i went to melbourne for their like australian slam i was there and i watched it and it was all people who lived in australia like a mix of backgrounds from kind of like pacific island to like australian to all and all of them delivered their poems and it wasn't their voice that they were talking in between sets, but in an American accent. And, you know, someone doing a poem about, you know, like my father's voice, kind of like classic kind of like, you know, my I, you know, I'm second generation immigrant. And, you know, my father's been to me and did the whole thing in an American accent. And it was not his or his dad's voice. And I was like, that to me is like the most tragic irony that your voice and your dad's voice have been commodified by mid-Atlantic American slam voice right and, and and it just i'd rather have someone get up on stage and go and do a piece that is complicated and maybe makes me go i don't know i don't know if you were a good person in that you know like but then that's that's my way in like i'm like that makes me reflect on my own transgressions or things whereas someone just going like politicians are they're shit aren't they i'm like yep and then it just i go yep um, I mean, do, you
1: do you think it's an age thing though? I think when you're young, you want to feel like you are amongst like-minded people. You want, you know, Mom Tazemary tweeted something very brilliant, and Mom Tazemary is just like leagues ahead of most of us in terms of her intellect and the way she thinks and her political stance on stuff. But she said something where she said, "I'm looking for mir- I'm looking for portals, not mirrors." And I was like, "Yeah," and I think that comes with age. And certainly, you and I have a particular saturation point we've reached because we've been in the scene for you know a long time so it's become rote and I think sometimes we have to go back to you know the first few poetry events we went to where it was genuinely revelatory at least it was for me to be like oh my god like black people like women queer people getting up here and like saying these things like I forget all the time because I roll my eyes because I've I've heard every iteration of like your oppression poem do you know what i mean up down all around like i know it all that sounds arrogant but like i really i've I've been out here and i've I've heard every version of that you could possibly tell and so inevitably i start to disengage i start to you know see all of the you know the cliches and all of the um you know well-trodden arcs of that but I have to remember being 18, 19, and I have to remember that for the kids I mentor and all the people that are coming up. I'm like, this is, this, is, this is a fucking revelation to you. You know, you're only just emerging into your adulthood. You're looking for people that are like you. You need that to feel anchored. You need that to feel valid. I think once you've reached a certain age, you can say, actually, I'm confident enough in myself and who I am and the value I bring to the world to listen to something that's antagon- like that antagonizes my point of view, or that unseats my idea of like the no- the nobility of being black, or the nobility of womanhood, or you know whatever else it might be. Um, but I think when you're young, you just need to feel like okay, like I've got a sense of what my values are politically, and there are other people championing that, or I need to just hear someone else who has a similar experience to me as a second generation immigrant, and just know like how many people came up to me. And people still do to this day. I'm kind of over it as a poem, but I've got a poem about the fact that me and my grandma don't share a language, you know, classic second-gen immigration, onanism, you know what I mean? Like, whatever. (laughs) But still, people will come up and be like, that moves me so much. And I have to remember, even though I'm like, oh, of course you like that fucking poem. (laughs) Why didn't you like my octopus poem, my cool, weird octopus poem? (laughs) but I'm like, yeah, like for that person, that might be the first fucking time they're hearing anything like that. They haven't been sat at poetry events for eleven years like I have. They've gone to one poetry event for the first time, and it's it, they're having that moment that I had ten years ago. And I have to I have to honour that. I have to I have to let them sit with that. You know what I mean? And um, I think sometimes it's very easy when you're at a certain stage to look at people back there where you were and be like, why are you over there? come on guys like keep up and it's like no everybody's where they're at right um and there's so much value there's so much value in it i mean yeah we're a bit tired of it because we've we've been round the houses with all that but i i think i think it needs to remain for the people that need it for the people that need that in do you know what i'm saying
0: because not everything is yeah because not everything i mean i the the i think it's a revelation to a lot of people in poetry, and especially people who are like old guard or to go, not every poem is was written specifically with you in mind, like you are not the audience of every piece. And what might seem kind of like a bit on the nose, a little bit broad for you, maybe you are not the primary audience for it. You're like you're like, well, how does this reward my years I've invested in poetry? How does this how does this have like a how does this have like a little shout out to something that only I know because only I have read that poem? Like, how does this, how do I know that this is excluding people? So I feel like it's an inside joke and a wink just to me. And it's like, well, no, none of that's there. And so you read the poem and you go, this isn't giving me any of the normal juice I get from poetry. This isn't isn't letting me know that I'm part of the crowd. And it's like, yeah, because it's not for you specifically. It's for people who haven't, built up the sort of like rig of like grappling hooks and stuff to get only into the tiny little crevices of super inside baseball poems which i love right i love something that makes me feel it's just a shout out to the kind of like the poetry backpackers who were there right at the beginning who kind of came up with it but you're right and and i wonder and i don't know how you feel about this that sometimes i think i'm a bit quick and i talked to byron vincent about this when we were talking about talking about mental health on stage and that impulse to make people feel comfortable by like ingratiating yourself with the audience and not doing an angry piece but doing a kind of like oh sorry guys i'm such a doofus you know look at me with my broken brain that you know that fear of alienating an audience or because i think a lot of those people doing those pieces those kind of like intense political pieces their actual experience of delivering it is not always this is gonna land and I'm gonna like just they're shitting themselves
1: and I think I think again I would bring it back to culture I think the privilege of presenting as a bumbling awkward um endearing person is again often the preserve of white men when I think of the Rob Orton's I think about you I think about yeah Byron Vincent to a certain extent like I'm not saying that I couldn't go on stage and do the same thing, but it's not going to read the same way, right? Um, People have a certain idea of how someone like me in the body that I'm in will perform. My register, my type of humour, how you're going to empathise with me. um, And I think we absorb those things subconsciously without even realising it. Like, I wouldn't necessarily have watched Rob Orton, who I adore and I think is a genius. I wouldn't have watched him and necessarily thought that there was something there that I could emulate or that people would be able to... Um, people would be able to like say, oh yeah, this makes sense. This coheres in my head that this black girl is kind of doing this awkward um sort of anti-humor thing. Oh yeah, this registers, this makes sense. This is something that feels familiar and and um like it makes sense in my head. It's it's not that. And I feel like without even realizing I was I was thinking this, that obviously comes through. Whereas the the the, the black women and poets that i observed or had a tended tended to have a certain way of performing and so you kind of go into you know what you feel is your canon you, your lane or whatever else and you know i've done a lot of pushing against that i'm like do you know what god damn it i will be quirky and irreverent or i will die you will you will let me be those things you know and i can also be the loud you know sort of like you know very kind of obviously you know like you know building from a certain particular canon that feels noticeably black you know I can do that but I can also do weird quirky a little bit awkward a little bit bumbling you will fucking deal with it even though your brain is going I don't quite know I don't quite know how to compute all of this do you know what I mean um so I think I think white white men often don't think about the privilege of that the privilege of not having to be shiny and slick and all these things that you're saying that often become quite tired tropes in slam right um I think this is why so many black entertainers are so fucking excellent they don't get to be the sh- the, the, the shuffling bumbling Bob Dylan you've got to be fucking brilliant you to be Michael Jackson you've got to be Beyonce you've got to be these, these you know like a fucking production of a person um to, to to justify your um time and space on that stage um so I think it's really interesting I had to check myself when I did a slam in Brazil, right? And it was amazing. It was like, you know, black people from all over the diaspora. And there were a lot of Brazilian black poets doing pieces there that were very angry, basically like just yelling for, you know, several hours, you know, doing poems about police brutality and this and that. And because I've heard so many things with similar sentiments and at similar decibels, I just found myself disengaging. I did the white man thing of like, well, don't expect me to listen if you're gonna yell at me. Or like don't expect me to listen if you're not gonna package it in some sort of delicate um metaphors and similes or whatever um and i was like, this is this is an art you're just you're just ranting right and you know me and um the poet from sweden and the poet from uh holland we were talking about it we're like oh so much yelling blah, blah blah and then i stepped back and i was like isn't it interesting that the three black poets that come from developed Majority white countries are feeling a little bit aggrieved with all the shouting, you know. And sometimes I have to check myself because when I was in New York and there was a similar vibe of like, you know, lots of African American poets yelling about police brutality and racism, and I was a bit like, and I went up there in my kind of contrarian thing, I was, I'm going to do my poem about strawberries because I'm so different. I was like, do you know what, Vanessa? You went to private school, you grew up in Kent yes, you're a black woman with all the stuff that comes with that, but you have never feared for your fucking life, right? I'm quite particular in that experience in that, you know, a lot of the perils that come with being black do not do not count for me. So it's actually entirely my privilege to feel dis- disengaged from that type of narrative, right? Um, and be like, Oh, why can't we just do poems about quirky things? It's like, no, but for some black people that's the fucking reality. Like, They're shouting because, like, yeah, I live in a place where, like, the police could could fucking take my life any minute. I don't know what that's like. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes I have to really check myself and be like, do you know what? Again, that white man in your head has done a number on you and made you forget that actually this is real. This isn't just like poetry to some people. This is their fucking life. Like those kids in Brazil, like I can't even imagine, you know, like kids like growing up in the favelas, like, you know, that shit is real it's not it's not a trope it's not a hashtag it's not a oh yeah you know I'm talking about this because I'm jumping on it like that that is their life so damn right they're shouting that like like it's like um that poem that's been going around from the Palestinian poet and it's and it's called um fuck craft my fuck your craft my people are dying and actually it's a very well crafted poem and it's it's on poetry foundation you know which says something about you know what what you know like the notion of like if they they put it on their website because they feel like it's like a good poem, but also it makes a very good point of like you know you keep going on about like oh where's the where's the delicacy where's the like slight of hand it's like do you know what fuck that like this is real to me this isn't just like a topic uh, uh you know a uh, a topic that I can dip into because I know it's going to give people a certain feeling like this is fucking real to me and sometimes you have to remind yourself as an as a as a listener do you know what like this is this is this isn't a game like this is this is this is real life so you know I've had to really check myself sometimes with that
0: I just I wonder I suppose like for me I think the thing you were saying that when I when I was hearing that and what I realized was and I was like oh shit is because I'm like I hear that and this is fucking terrible but I was going yeah but I can't win on those terms, right? If we're going to say, oh, what's legitimate is like someone's experience. And like when we're going to think of poems as more than poems, I'm like, oh, the reason it makes me feel threatened is because I can't outmaneuver people on those terms. I'm like, oh, but if I shift it back to say cadence or I shift it back to like, well, have you thought about like, how many, like, multi-syllabic rhymes you can get in at the end. Then I'm like, right, now I've shifted it back to a territory where, like, I'm going to take all that perceived advantage away from... And I I do think part of it is to do with just that the Poetry Slam format is a, a needless... It introduces competitive, like, a competitive format in art. And so, as poets, we're kind of encouraged... To see each other, I know people are going to say, "Oh, I don't see other poets as threats." But like in the American scene, like your ability to win or lose a slam can be your ability to m- make money for the year. You know, like this. So, so it's it's tricky because like on one level, it is commodified, and and it does encourage. There is like, there is like, you know, I see poets who, you know, they appear to be just like a kind of white middle class guy, and then they'll be doing a piece about, you, you know, they'll invent. Oh, no, I don't want to say, like, because I'm making a saying they're not invented, But do you know what I mean? I just worry that people are, it forces people to lean into that. And I feel like you got to, I just, it's, it's complicated. Like, I feel myself, like, I, I get to, I feel that, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And, and it's partly because I'm like, well, oh, there's no, like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, there's, I can't. It's the scene that I've given, I gave my life. To, and then I'm like, well, I'm not sure I've got anything of value if lived experience is the currency. And I and I don't think that that is a reason that I don't think that's a I, I think that's just that's just my insecurities speaking. I don't think that's necessarily a valid thing at all.
1: And also, crucially, like Tim, like like I said, you know, these scenes were built because we didn't get any credence or validation anywhere else, right? So yeah, if you feel a little bit like this is not for me, like good. Do you know what I mean? Like, and also that's not true because you made a career out of it. Yeah, so yeah. I feel like sometimes, you know, white men can really overestimate this thing of like, oh, look at all these um, literary prizes. It's all women now, it's all brown people now. And I'm like, is it like shaggy Bain? That was a white guy. Like, do you know what I mean? Like they act as if they've been completely removed from the landscape and it's not true. There are plenty of white dudes in the slam scene and in the poetry scene. Um, and even if you, even if you weren't there, You have every fucking, like, you have, you have, like, the rest of the world, you know what I mean? And I feel like it's that classic mentality where, you know, men want to ask about International Men's Day or they want to ask about, oh, but what about, you know, when men get raped or when men get falsely accused of rape? And it's like, you weren't fucking talking about this until we were talking about this particular issue. And it's a similar mentality where it's like, oh, this little tiny, little inconsequential, quite niche, not very financially lucrative art form. But why won't you let me get involved like no, no, no. it's like my guy like you can probably go and get like a traditional publisher you can go and do that whole traditional route the route that we were constantly rejected from so we made this space for ourselves and now you want to come in and be like what? why don't you want to listen to me and my white man poems and it's like this is stupid like do you know what i mean
0: and why shouldn't lived experience be like quite an important part of a why why shouldn't that be a legitimate topic for like art right like when did suddenly that become like you go oh you've had an experience no you've got to have to set that aside here Where like
1: i think you can see that happening even in traditional poetry when you know the sylvia plaths and whatever else were popular and then there was just this dismissal of like oh women just like they just they just bloodlet on the page they're not actual um writers They're just, they're just talking about their feelings, right? And that's always an underhand way. And you can see it with Rupi Kawa and Holly McNish, like this notion that like, you're not a real writer. You're just, you're just putting words to like the, the witterings of, you know, your sort of vague womanly experiences. And that's not real craft. And, like, I don't know, maybe there's a point there, but I'm just a bit like, who gives a fuck? Like, who who made you judge and juror? Like, what is like? why are we all supposed to be adhering to your rules of what is and isn't literary? Ultimately, these people are engaging people. People are excited by Rupi Kaur's poetry. People are excited by Holly's poetry. Like, what is it to you? There's still all the T.S. Elliots and all them, they haven't suddenly disappeared because Holly's one Sunday, got the Sunday Times bestseller list, or because Rupi Kaur's pretty much the only poet, to have sold a million copies, that doesn't remove the plethora of other poets that are probably more to your taste. And yet people just seem to feel like they have to defend something that is supposedly being pushed away or pushed aside. Nothing's being pushed aside, you know? People just cannot fucking bear, they cannot fucking bear that people like that. And that women and young people specifically like that. Um, So I understand the feeling, like it's human to be like, I feel like I'm not relevant here, or I feel like there's people here who have one up on me and it's like, well, well, welcome, welcome. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly. Welcome That's to the life, good. baby. Like, <laughs> do you know how many times I felt like I didn't have the currency to to move through the world in ways that I wanted because I was born in the body I'm born in? Welcome to the fucking world. Fucking, fucking take it on the chin like everybody else. Do you know what I'm saying? Like,
0: And and it, and it it's funny how, like, you kind of, like, start out going, oh, I want to be, like... Uh... I'd really like to do stuff that kind of like shakes things up or I'd, I'd like to feel like I was doing stuff that some people, you know, won't understand. And then as soon as you're sort of in a situation where you actually feel like that rather than being in a situation where you've kind of confected that for yourself, like, you know, when you're kind of like a guy doing some kind of like, let me tell you a few home truths about um, why adverts are shit and you kind of like feel like I'm being like really anti-establishment. But actually, as soon as you're in any situation where you're like, oh, like some of the things I might say, well, do you believe them or not? Are you going to say, if you don't and you're pausing because you go, are you pausing you go, oh, this this audience won't get it? Or are you pausing because you go, they won't get it? And to be honest, then I don't have the courage of my convictions now I'm saying them because maybe they, maybe they kind of got a point. But like maybe without just people just laughing and laughing and letting me say it, I, because because then like either you've got one of two things either you're saying stuff to audiences who genuinely don't agree with you doing it bravely in which case like there's some point to it you are delivering opinions that are not or you know or you can change your opinions because you're realizing that like maybe you don't agree with them, but they were what your audience wanted i i totally i totally like yeah I think you're I think you're right and it's like it, it it's made it may it's made me often realize actually how, um, how a, uh, you know like you want to kind of go away and it makes you want to make your writing better because you're like okay well maybe like I can't rely on just coming on stage and going well we because that's the thing is you don't notice going on stage and being like hey we also think the same about this right gang kind of like and winking at people and stuff. And then when that's taken away from you, it feels like you've somehow been robbed of your home when actually you're being asked to write something better, maybe. I don't know. That's my experience of it.
1: You know, if you go to Bang Said the Gun, that's a particular lane um, where I feel like, you know, there's definitely that space for poetry that hinges on comedy, that hing- hinges on surrealism. You know, that's where, you know, Dan Cockrell, Rob Orton, Laurie Bolger, Jack Rook, all these people kind of like got some of their starts. Um, and, you know, that's very different to if you went to a poetry night that was hosted by Cat Francois in a particular part of London where it's mostly young black people, you know, and there's going to be certain stories, there's going to be this, there's going to be that. And, you know, I can say that with confidence as someone that has performed at every type of night, every type of context. And um, what I found is that I am always embarrassed and taken down a peg by all of the assumptions I make about myself and an audience at every turn. So when I do and I perform at like Cheltenham Literature Festival and I'm like, oh, you know, they're going to find me loud and brash and this and that. And you know, I look at them and they all seem, you know, like, you know, white middle-class lib dem voting. You know, you, want, you know, I come up with this whole narrative about who they are and what they expect of me. And it's like, actually, all of this is projection. All of this is projection. And it happens the same if I do an event um, at Shoreditch and it's all young black people like me. And then my head goes, no, but I'm not just going to come up here and do, and like pander to them because they think I'm like, like them or whatever else and you know I'm always trying to be a contrarian I'm always trying to do the thing that people don't expect of me and it's like you don't know what they expect of you I mean yeah you're probably basing it on some you know it's like a bunch of evidence you've collated over years of performing and that's not completely invalid but also just like just fucking relax just do what you're here to do and let people respond how they want to respond and I think it's very easy to assume that that you know we read an audience's reaction through their laughter or through their sort of rapt silence mm-hmm. or through all these different like, you know, signifiers, right, and, you know, when you're used to, let's say, you know, you've gone to a lot of events where it's very much about that clicking and that, you know, audible kind of call and response type energy that um, like you see this a lot when American poets come here and they are so disturbed by how quiet we are relative to their audiences right and it's not because we're less interested or we're less engaged we just we just respond differently so you know when I came from spoken word and then I started performing at lit- you know more literary events people don't clap in between poems <laughs> they just sit and listen and you think oh my god they fucking hate me. They hate me like you know their faces are really still you know they haven't got particularly dynamic responses you know if they find something great they're not going to be like I am showing you that. I think this is great. They're just listening. So you think, these guys hate me. This is an absolute wash. And then afterwards, you know, people come to buy books and they, they love it. And, you know, they're talking to you about very specific elements. And you're like, wow, like, I just can never know what's going on in people's minds. And that that is consistently humbling to me because it just shows that for all the assumptions I think people are making of me, I'm doing it times 10, you know? So it's just like... The, the brain really is an is a, a remarkable organ in that way um I don't even know what you asked me and I feel like that that answer was completely irrelevant to what you asked
0: me. no it was no it was really it was really spot on and I was just listening I was just doing the same thing that you were just describing of listening and going oh yeah yeah I mean like it I feel like m- probably my most validating gig experiences are when I've made that sort of little leap of faith and instead of trying to like lean into what i think the audience wants i do even if it's just one little thing at the beginning where i somehow connect i, I hate the word authenticity because it's so like cheap it's it's too easy we don't know necessarily know what we're talking about but like when i'm able to kind of just be the, the present in the just say hello I, I I just you know uh, hi um this is me kind of thing and it doesn't have to be that kind of like you know we talked about like status lowering thing but just something because that can be fake as well if you go on and go and you're actually you're feeling great like if I'm having a lovely day then I'll go on and go hey this is great oh, I'm really excited you know like you can do all sorts of levels of that but when I've been able to connect with them on that level then you can then I think people are often just want you to bring what you can do and they'll connect with you. And when I was thinking, when you were talking about it, I was thinking about going to Beijing and performing there and being like, oh, lots of people are only have English as their second language in the audience. What the fuck am I going to do? They won't get any of the references. And then them being fine because what they didn't want is someone to turn up and just tell them stuff they already know. They want someone to bring something from home because that's what they don't have. And, and and they don't want just like international like jokes about kind of what about... What was the deal with airline food type of things? They want you to be able to talk about yourself because that's what that's your currency in a way. Like, um, and and that's I don't know. Like, I I guess how have you been sort of in the because the pandemic has sort of stopped people performing and being a dad has stopped me performing for years. So I've been talking about this as if a I ever competed in a slam. I didn't. So I've never I've never had that thing because I've always had like my own. But also like. I know the whole scene has kind of temporarily imploded and I wonder what it's been like for you. Uh,
1: Really terrifying at first, you know, it was that thing. I don't know whether you had anything comparable, but just that litany of emails, canceling stuff, just cancellation, cancellation, cancellation. And just being like, Oh fuck. Okay. Um, But you know what? I think it precipitated what was already a natural transition for me from performance being the main bulk of what I do to wanting to go into other things, wanting to write long form work. And it kind of just pushed me into that more decisively, I suppose. Whereas I guess I probably would have been trudging along doing what I've been doing for a couple more years because it's kind of hard to stop that train when that's how you pay your bills. So it's kind of hard to say, I'm going to say no to all these gigs because I want to focus on like writing a novel. And, you know, I'm lucky now in that I've been given Arts Council funding to sit and do that. Whereas the the excuse was always, I can't say no to paid work to write a novel speculatively because it's my first one. I can't, you know, I'm not gonna have an advance. I'm not gonna have that safety net of like, this is gonna make me money. And I know it's gonna take me fucking ages to write a first draft because I've never done it before. So I feel like this pandemic has meant that I've actually been able to revisit everything, think about where I wanna head towards in you know the next few years of my career and, you know, it's kind of weird, isn't it? When something like a career highlight happens in the aftermath of political turmoil. But, you know, then obviously George Floyd um, was murdered. You know, there was this sort of surge of interest in, you know, like black writers, black thinkers, whatever else. And, you know, I've got mixed feelings about that whole kind of uh, cycle of how people engage with, with, with black people in the image aftermath or something like that. But then, you know, the, the Edward Colson statue came down I wrote this poem and it was all quite sort of instantaneous and I didn't I wasn't I wasn't gunning for a viral moment and I think most people that get them aren't that's kind of what's very unpredictable about them but anyway that kind of blew up and then you know there was a bunch of stuff that came from that and that's a, that's a, that's a strange thing but also I I feel like I have my integrity intact I don't feel like I was trying to jump on something or speak to something that wasn't relevant to me. I was speaking about a statue that came down in a city that I've lived in for 11 years um, as the city, like the appointed city poet. Do you know what I mean? At the time I was Bristol City poet. So I felt like that was relevant to me. I wasn't trying to be that person jumping on the George Floyd conversation as if, we haven't been fucking saying that the police are animals for decades. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't interested in reiterating what to me has always been obvious.
0: It wasn't like you were down in the down in the in the in the sort of in the dock in your little dinghy with your with, with, with your binoculars, going. Someday this statue's going to come down. Someday this poem's going to be ready. I'm ready to jump on this. Come on, Colston. I need my payday. <laughs>
1: it's crazy. Like you know, I I, I put that poem up. It mushroomed, um, you know, I had the Kofi page, and I was like, fuck it. Like, initially, I was like, I don't really want to, like, be attaching tip stuff to it. But then my friend was like, you're being so weird, like, just do it, it's fine. And I was like, oh, you know, like, here you go, if you want to chuck a little bit of money in there, go for it. And, like, four, I got, like, 4K from that. Wow, just holy like, shit. Like, 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 mad, do you know what I mean? So, that was, like, a, okay, few. like, that kind of redresses all the money I've lost from all these, like, gigs. Um... And then from there, things started to pick up again workwise. I mean, for a while, I was um, soliciting, you know, HMRC grants and stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, things are kind of back to normal now in terms of the, the work that's coming in, which is great because it's not gigs, it's other stuff, it's commissions, it's, you know, different types of things that are going on. So I'm just very, very grateful. But I think this is the wonderful thing about being the type of artists we are, when you come to fruition through a very spunky kind of DIY art form where you're a, a writer, a performer, self-promoter, um, I guess, arguably, you know, motivational speaking, comedy, music, like, you know, people are kind of dabbling in all types of things under this vague umbrella of spoken word, right? It means that you can pivot really easily. Like, when you, when you if I were to tell you all the different contexts that I have performed and written, you'd be like, what's going on? What's the common denominator here? There isn't one. The common denominator is that I did them, but like it's mad some of the things that I've done, like that I've been paid to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, everything from copywriting to like um obviously workshop facilitation, but like, you know, like things that, you know, kind of fall under the umbrella of like, yeah, motivational, like I went to like this like women in business event and they wanted me at the time, I must've been what, 24, 25 to talk to these grown ass women that make three times what I make in a year and tell them how to be assertive, confident women. And I was like, why don't you tell me some shit? <laughs> <laughs> you, you make more money in a month than I do in six. So I feel like this is the wrong round, but like, you know, I just, I found myself in the most inexplicable context, like, you know, speaking at conferences for immigration and development in Bangladesh Um you know, performing at Glastonbury, um, performing at, like, someone's birthday party. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, just just, just so strange, so inexplicable, but it means that I really feel like I can do anything. I can do anything. Like, I could write a film. I could um, write a theatre show that either a cast would perform or that I could perform. I could do acting. I could probably do a bit of music if it didn't involve me actually singing. But, like, do you know what I mean? I feel like... I I have built a career for myself where I've ch- I've chopped myself into so many random contexts and more or less floated. Sometimes I've really tanked, but like it's 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 such a blessing because in this era we live in where like job security is just basically non-existent, nobody knows what's going on, like the landscape is constantly changing, what got you lots of money and attention last year is now passe like you just constantly are having to like reinvent the wheel and I feel like without realizing I have definitely like trained myself to be able to withstand the complete flux of this this era we're living in um, and it was always precarious to be a writer or an artist of any kind but I feel like right now it is just like what even is this I you know I'm writing a book and I'm like Will books exist in 10 years? I know that we keep thinking that they're going to disappear and that's not happened thus far, but I'm like, surely at some point that's gonna happen. (laughs) They're gonna become CDs. They're gonna just basically become irrelevant. Um, Not the stories themselves, but the format of a physical book at some point, surely is just not gonna be a thing anymore. And it's like, okay, what do you do once that happens? And you know, you are just constantly having to just be like, okay, I will make it work regardless. I mean, how do you feel about being part of a a literary art form where you're like, things just keep changing or like, you know, the platforms on which we can make money keep changing or the amount of money that we can expect to make keeps changing. Right.
0: It's just I mean, it's just like trying to like build a, a kind of lemonade stand on top of a. The world's most like active volcano like and i think like like there'll always be people coming there because they're just kind of a, they're like what the fuck are you doing so you get business from a kind of shocked just the spectacle of it right makes people want to come and look um i like the thing is you don't want to ever jinx it by going like but it's just whenever i've reached out for the kind of next Uh, next branch to kind of like pull myself along it's always been there and it's all and sometimes it's only come just in time and you look back and you think oh that was easy but actually at the time you didn't know where the next check was coming from and you find projects and sometimes like the fear makes you go and try but I've always tried to use the fear to push me towards doing sort of almost more more daring things because I'm like you know you can I can fuck up doing something I hate really so I might as well if I'm if like this isn't safe anyway then I might as well take the I have to take these gambles to try and find something to grab onto and and it and it just it pushes me forward into interesting places I don't, I don't you know the truth is I don't know what I'm doing and sometimes that can seem like a very sort of cute twee thing to say like oh gee gee I don't know what I'm doing and it's like I I don't know how I'm going to feed my daughter. I don't know when the bailiffs are going to come round. You know, like, you know, it's, it's it's very, it's deadly serious at one level. But on the other hand, that doesn't actually help me. Like worrying about it, getting adrenalized doesn't help me actually solve it. So I've just got to kind of have this. I don't have any faith in some mystic universe pushing me through it. But I almost have to, it, it helps me. It benefits me to pretend as if that exists because that tends to help my decisions. It helps me be creative, which is what gets me paid, right? So, Right, right, right. Absolutely. And,
1: you know, I was talking to my friend, another writer, yesterday, and I was saying to her, there's such an X-factor mentality of, like, oh, I'm talented, and it's, su- it's such a it's such an affront that I'm working in Asda because I can sing. You know, there's always that notion when they do their VTs that, like, here I am working at Coffin Warehouse, or, like, here I am, like, you know, like... Doing some, you know, whatever sort of standard, menial job, and this sense that like this is this is this is unjust because when you are talented, you should be able to pursue that to fame and money and and you know like rapturous acclaim. That is what you are owed because you are good at perfunctorily good at something, and I feel like we really need to push against that. And I was saying to her, you know, sure, I love what I do, and if I get the privilege of doing it until I die, I mean, what more could I ask for? But also fucking hell like if it falls apart I go get a job in arts admin I go you know manage a bar and it will be fine because I will still be loved by the people that matter to me I will still have the ability to write and create and I like to think that I would pursue that regardless of whether people are watching regardless of whether people are paying me um and I feel like this entitlement sometimes or this this notion this like kind of narrative we build around oh what's your passion go pursue it go do it particularly now Again, going back to the precariousness thing, because people are monetizing their hobbies, monetizing their talents. There's this constant association with this isn't valid unless someone's paying me for it or someone's liking it and and retweeting it. And I think you can get into a really unhealthy mindset of like judging other people. So, you know, let's say someone says to you, I'm a musician, but you know, like I, I have this job on the side and we immediately downgrade their talent or their validity because they haven't managed to pursue it full time or sustain it full time. And it's just like, what the the fuck is that? You know what I mean? Like, it's totally fine to be a teacher. And, you know, we know plenty of poets, incredible poets who are like teachers, university lecturers, whatever else. And that doesn't undermine their art. If anything, it makes it richer because they have a foot in the real world. You know, I would argue that there are a lot of writers that don't write very well because they've been a writer their whole life. They've not been living amongst the normal people. Do you know what I mean? And you can tell, you know, writers that write about writers all the time all their protagonists are writers it's like this isn't the most relatable person in the world you know what i mean because us writers are fucking like we are a particular brand of neurotic and self-obsessed
0: i also think writers are are weirdly shit at writing writers like I, i i i'm always amazed how shit they are at writing actual writers as well i'm just like this is like your this is your this is like the one this should be like a slam dunk for you and you can't even do that
1: It's such a trope. And again, it just kind of shows that you have just been around other writers and artists your whole life. And I'm very grateful. And it's very easy to romanticize it in the rear view mirror of hindsight. But I'm very grateful that I worked at Paper Chase. I worked at cafes. I did all of that. Yeah, it was menial and the pay wasn't that great, but like I can do I can go back to that. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm never going to be destitute. There is work out there in this world, do you know what I mean? And I'm not I'm not above any of it. Just because I'm a good writer doesn't mean I'm above cleaning toilets or I'm above office work or. Do you know what I mean? We do what we got to do to survive, to feed our kids, to pay our mortgages. And if you're a writer in your heart, sorry to be corny, it doesn't none of this shit you will do it regardless. You know what I'm saying? Um if it's actually about the clout that's where you have to be honest with yourself I actually do this so that other people tell me I'm shiny and there's nothing wrong with that but like be honest about that because that's a very different thing and I think that's that x-factor mentality again where it's like do you love singing or do you love how people respond to you and how people treat you because you're a good singer those are different things and this is why a lot of people pursue fame right whereas they can't even tell you what they want to be famous for or what they're willing to do to get good enough at something to thus earn their fame, right? People just want, just like I just want that thing where people look and go, oh, it's so and so, right? So as much as I said at the beginning that I am an attention whore and I love people clapping me, I'm also just like, do you know what? If five years from now I'm just doing a quote-unquote normal job, like there's no sh- there's no shame in that, like, and I and I have to really tell myself because that actually. Ironically, makes it more likely for me to be able to sustain this because I am not I am not running from the horror of a normal job. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, God forbid, I have to give up writing and go do this job. It's like we're talking about the vast majority of the population. Am I saying that they are they are lowly and I am better because I've managed to sustain a career out of this thing? like no. So that weirdly keeps me going because I had a moment a few years ago where I I there was no fucking money. Like I'd had a really long dry patch. There was nothing on the horizon. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I I I have to stop, basically. And I did a really uh oversharing Facebook post. And you know, people, you know, swarmed in with all of their, you know, sort of uh, you know, I feel I feel similar or I've been going through this too, or da 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 do. And like, you know what, like bless bless people, like people really like came through for me. Like Holly McNish, was a very dear friend of mine. Um, who's done so much for me? She just, she has my bank details because I do lots of support slots for her, and she just deposited a substantial amount of money in there without telling me. And you know, like other people came through and were like, oh, I can give you some work, I can give you this gig, I can do this, I can do that. And then from there, my career reached a new height. But that was a point where I could have stopped. And as devastated as I was, I was like, it's okay. I've had a good run. I'll go get a normal job. I'll feel a bit sad, but life will go on. And I think that moment has been so profound for me. I look back on it often because there are moments, obviously periodically where I'm like, okay, I feel like, you know, the pandemic was on where it was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, is it, is it time to get that application for Sainsbury's, like, is it that time? Um, and I always end up fine in the end and I managed to, you know, get back into the groove. But I think it's so important as writers to not be snobby and be like, oh my God, how terrible would it be to like not, to not be a full-time writer? like would it be that terrible like it's fine like <laughs> you know
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I I you know I I, I do and like I, I think and I think that just stops writing becoming like this thing where you sit down and you kind of like you're rubbing your hands going okay this has got to be good because otherwise the whole show's over that's yeah. not like a good that's not conducive to writing that's yeah. not going to make it fun that's going to be horrible it's going to make every time you sit down at the keyboard uh, a test that's going to determine your future yes. and that's just grim that is gr- that is just grim like you will you will have a shit time and so i think it's i, th- I think like beyond anything else apart from it being I, I think it's just pragmatic to approach it that way i think it like you say it makes it more likely you can sustain it because it, it stops making everything like a horrendous referendum on your whole identity.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, Vanessa, like if people want to, thanks so much for chatting with me. If people want to, um, find you on, uh, line, uh, like all your work, and um, where's the best place for them to go?
1: Um, so Vanessa com. that's casule with two U's like vacuum. um, That's probably the best place to see my work. Um, I'm going through quite a big transition work-wise at the moment. So you'll be seeing poems of mine on YouTube that if you ask me if that's me, I'm going to deny all knowledge. (laughs) Um, But it's fine, you know, like that is, that is a part of me too. But I feel like there might be a sense of like, oh, like you're kind of going on a different path with the things that I, I'm going to be putting into the world in the near future. Um, But anyway, let me not caveat. That's, that's a really silly thing to do. And then I am on Twitter, tweeting, even though I try not to tweet too much, probably tweeting more than your average person. Um, So that's Vanessa underscore Kassile. Yeah, those are the two main places that you can find me.
0: Cool. Thank you for
1: having me, Tim.
0: Thanks very much for for, for chatting, Vanessa. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. And um, everyone listening, thanks for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.